Welcome to Shelter in Place, a podcast about finding daily sanity in a world that feels increasingly insane. Coming to you from Oakland, California, I'm Laura Joyce Davis. One of my children often wakes up in the morning irritated at the world, determined to be cranky, which makes the rest of us irritable and cranky. So the other day, I decided I'd put to the test an experiment my psychologist friend Jen told me about years ago. She said that even faking a smile makes you feel better. She told me about this study where participants stuck a pencil between their teeth, forcing their mouths into a smile. They reported feeling way better than the other group, who stuck the pencil between their lips, forcing a frown. I looked up the study today, and it was just as Jen had told me. Even the fakers felt better. You can try this for yourself, except COVID-19. Maybe don't do this unless you have one of those disinfectant wipes handy, at which point you should probably wait until the pencil's dry or maybe rinse it off with water. I have no idea. This is the first time I've had to think through a situation where I would put something in my mouth that I just wiped off with powerful chemicals and in order to make myself happy. Maybe just read about the experiment in my show notes later. Anyway, back to my kids. My grumpy child was predictably nonplussed by the experiment, certain that it wouldn't work. This child voiced loudly that it was a dumb experiment, but he complied. So we all sat there around the dinner table with pencils in our teeth. I don't know if it was the forced pencil smile or the way that my three-year-old was really getting into it, scrunching up her entire face, or just seeing my whole family sitting around like a bunch of goose with pencils on our teeth but I felt this bubble of laughter rising up. My older daughter must have felt it too, because we both let out a big guffaw at the same time. My three-year-old shrieked with joy, obviously just waiting for the cue. Even my grumpy kid chuckled, and we had a better morning from that point on. It wasn't perfect, but we all felt a little lighter. Clarence Darrow said that if you lose the power to laugh, you lose the power to think. According to the Mayo Clinic, laughing, even if it feels forced at first, is really good for us. It stimulates our hearts, lungs, and muscles, and enhances our intake of oxygen-rich air. It releases endorphins in our brains, which make us feel better. In this time of sickness and anxiety, laughter can not only decrease our stress, but improve our immune system. It can relieve pain by causing the body to produce its own natural painkillers. It can help us cope with difficult situations. And of course, it also improves our mood and connects us with others. There is a time for everything, said the writer of Ecclesiastes. So today, I'm setting aside the usual meaning of life stuff and declaring it a time to laugh. The story I'm going to share with you is one that for a long time was not at all funny to me. In fact, I swore I would never breathe a word of it to anyone. It's a story I haven't thought about for a long time. It begins 25 years ago. There was a time in my life when running was everything to me, when I could think of nothing else. Running would eventually pay my way through college. It would give me the confidence I mostly lacked growing up. It would teach me how to succeed and how to fail. But this story was way before all that. This story takes place my sophomore year of high school, when I did not get cast in the fall musical. I should put that failure in context. Our family was a musical family. While other kids my age grew up watching The Breakfast Club and St. Elmo's Fire, 
My family was watching The Music Man, West Side Story, Guys and Dolls, and also deeper cuts like Hit the Deck and Tammy. My cousins lived in our neighborhood, and the kids in our family and theirs didn't just sing The Sound of Music. We were The Sound of Music. I was Martha, and occasionally an understudy for Gretel when my little brother didn't feel like playing a girl. My high school in Minnesota, Wayzata High School, was blessed with Roger Mon and Rebecca Weifels, two teachers who year after year performed the miracle of polishing amateurs into high-quality performers, some of whom would be destined for Broadway. I've been dreaming of being in those musicals all through elementary school and junior high. Musicals were in my blood. They were the soundtrack to my life. My sophomore year of the musical was Anything Goes. It wasn't one of my favorites, but no matter. This was my destiny. When the list for callbacks was posted, I was on it. I was nervous at that audition, especially since I knew I'd have to dance line dance style, something I'm still not very good at. I fumbled through that part, hoping my singing and acting would make up for my lack of moves on the dance floor. But when I opened my mouth to sing, my voice came out on pitch, but too thin. When I had to act out a scene, I felt suddenly silly, unable to play the part. When the cast list was posted, I wasn't on it. I was crushed. I went home and sulked, sure that my life was over. What else was there without Mary and the librarian and Maria? My parents suggested that I try something else. And that's when I remember Dave Emmons, the cross-country coach. Dave would become one of the most significant mentors in my life, and he's still my friend today. But back then, he was just a guy who wore shorty running shorts like all the distance runners wore. The previous spring, Dave had seen me running on the track and said he thought I'd be good at distance running. I laughed and politely declined. I was a sprinter. The only running I enjoyed was the kind that was over in roughly 13 seconds. I could not imagine why anyone would choose to run longer. But after the musical failure... I reconsidered. I had a couple of friends on the team. It was already a month into the season, and it was possible that Dave would turn me away, but what else was I going to do? Dave kindly allowed me to join the team late. I was grateful, but I immediately felt out of place. I didn't know any of the goofy warm-up drills they did. I wasn't versed in runner lingo. I didn't even own a stopwatch. My two friends on the team were on varsity, so when we went out for runs every day at practice, I was too bashful to join them. But little by little, I started getting the hang of things. I still didn't love running, but I was slowly getting better. After a couple of weeks, I could run for 45 minutes without stopping. One day, when it was time for us to go off in groups or pairs for a long run, everyone around me seemed to have already paired off. I told myself, it was okay if I had to run alone today. No big deal. I felt tears spring to my eyes. But then I heard a voice beside me. Want to run together today? It was a girl I knew by name but had never met. Melissa Cliff. She was a freshman. One of those kids who had been running forever, who came from a family of runners, I think. Or at least that's how I remember it. She was a veteran. I felt a sweep of gratitude at her offer. And off we went. Melissa and I didn't have a lot to say to each other. I was still feeling shy, and maybe we just didn't have that much in common. But there was a sort of comfort in running along beside someone, chatting only when we had something to say. We ran through the neighborhoods of Plymouth, Minnesota, relishing the last moments of summer. 
The air was still warm, but already the leaves were changing. Up ahead of us, a big group of varsity girls were singing while they ran, laughing hysterically. Someone drove by and honked loudly, and the girls all cheered. Mostly, Melissa and I were quiet, but I was grateful. It was good to be out there, to not be alone. Eventually, we lost sight of the other girls, and Melissa suggested a loop that she knew through a neighborhood called Fox Run. It would add on a little time, but that was okay. We'd been running for about 40 minutes by then, and I figured I could go longer. Fox Run was a new neighborhood, smoothly paved streets lined with starter homes that were all attractive in exactly the same way. All of the trees were newly planted, too small to offer any kind of shade, but someday they'd canopy the streets. The yards were neatly groomed and the houses close together. I was feeling pretty good, realizing for the first time that I was stronger than I'd given myself credit for. And then, all at once, everything changed. My stomach rumbled, and I felt a flush of panic in my face that spread down to my neck and chest. I felt sick. My brain raced back through the day to the things I'd eaten to the last time I'd used the bathroom. I'd had a snack right before my run. Some dried apricots and a granola bar. A choice of food that had seemed incidental at the time. Now I regretted it. I need to use the bathroom, I said to Melissa, trying to make my voice sound natural. Nothing out here, Melissa said cheerfully. Not even a tree to squat behind. How long until we get back to the school, I said, my voice clenching with panic. She did some private calculation and glanced at her watch. Maybe ten minutes, if we head back right now? Ten minutes. There was no way I was going to make it to ten minutes. But there was no way I could tell Melissa about what was going on with my body. Instead, I said, are there woods anywhere nearby? But I didn't even give her a chance to respond. My pulse was racing. My bowels were roiling like hot lava. I knew I had mere seconds before something came out. I wasn't sure if I was going to throw up or have an accident, but I needed to do something. I bolted from beside Melissa and hightailed it between two identical brown houses. I prayed that nobody was home. I ran as fast as I could to the backyard of one of them to... What? There were no trees, nothing but grass stretching to the next row of homes. But then I saw it. A wood pile. It wasn't big, no taller than my waist, but if I could just make it there, I could duck down. I kept running. Almost there. I couldn't bear to look back. I could only hope that Melissa hadn't followed. Just a few more steps and I would be there. And then my belly churned once again. I leapt toward the woodpile and squatted. One second too late. My breath caught in my throat with the full realization of what had just happened. The hot lava wasn't in my belly now. I put my head down and stared at the dirt beneath me, wishing I could dig a hole and cover myself in it. Instead, I carefully peeled off my clothes. My nylon shorts had only a small smear, so I set them aside. My underwear was another story. I dug a hole with a nearby stick, but the dirt was rocky and my hole was shallow. Somehow I'd managed to soil every square of fabric. I peered over the woodpile. No faces looked at me from windows. I could see Melissa standing out there on the street, looking back at me with concern. 
You okay, Laura? She called out. Yeah, I said unconvincingly. I just need a minute. I put the underwear on the ground and turned to cleaning myself. There were no leaves, so I used the stick to scrape myself off as best I could. Already I could feel the acidic burn on my skin. I looked back again at the offending underwear. Imagine what I would say to Melissa if I emerged with them folded in my hand, reeking of my shame. It was clear I couldn't bring them out with me. I tried again to dig a hole, but I couldn't get deep enough to properly bury it. I looked around once again. Even a big rock would do. But the rocks I found were mere pebbles. You sure you're okay? Melissa called to me from the street. Yep, I said, but I was beginning to panic. I had to do something with those underwear. I couldn't just leave them on the ground in full view. It was bad enough that I was here at all, leaving feces under a dusting of dirt. When I peered over the wood pile, I saw Melissa walking toward me. I looked around again. I had to do something. And then, because I could think of nothing else, I picked up a neatly split piece of firewood, tucked my folded underwear beneath it, and replaced the wood on top. I stood upright just in time to see Melissa startle a few feet away from me. Please don't tell anyone, I said in a hoarse whisper. I'm so embarrassed. Melissa stood a little straighter and gave me a sheepish smile. Tell them what? I wanted to hug her, but, well, you know why I didn't. And anyway, she was backing away from me by then, keeping her distance as we ran. I couldn't blame her. I'm 25 years too late, but I do want to apologize to the people of Fox Run, who at some point must have gone out for firewood and found a nasty surprise. I want to thank Melissa for keeping my secret all these years. It wasn't until years later when a runner friend told me a similar story that I learned that what I experienced that day with Melissa isn't all that uncommon among distance runners. All of that running can do strange things to your bowels. When I was pregnant, I learned to always run with a stash of toilet paper in my pocket. It's still embarrassing to tell that story, but laughing about it helps. Last night, I told the story to my kids for the first time. They stared at me with wide eyes at first, and then we all started giggling. My daughter asked me if I ever pooped in my pants again. I hesitated. I'd had close calls too many times to count. There was the time in college when I was running back from the Arboretum and was three blocks from my apartment and had to duck behind someone's back porch. And that other time when I had Indian food for dinner and the public bathroom was locked. And a few days ago when I realized with panic that COVID-19 meant I would not be able to duck into the pizza place where I usually stopped in these situations. But then... I glimpsed the porta potty in front of someone's house with the name of the company that made it Honey Bucket, which both totally grossed me out and made me laugh. The porta potty was open. There was even hand sanitizer inside. It was that experience that reminded me of the story I told you today. So, yes, there are some other stories, but there's a limit to how many poop stories I'm willing to tell in a single day. If my poop story wasn't successful in making you laugh today, I've included in my show notes some of my favorite YouTube videos that have had my kids and me in stitches lately. The Mayo Clinic also suggests something called laughter yoga, which I had never heard of until today, but that made me giggle in the first few seconds of my perusal of online videos. I am definitely going to try it with my kids today. 
I've included links in my show notes, so you can too. If you've enjoyed today's episode of Shelter in Place, I would love it if you could rate it and review it wherever you listen, share it with a friend, and subscribe. Shelter in Place is sponsored by Brick and Mortar and Delta Wines. Even in these tough times, this family business has stepped up to be the first sponsor of Shelter in Place. When you order wine from brickandmortarwines.com or winesforchange.com, you can get 10% off your order by using the promo code SHELTER. If you order six or more bottles from Brick and Mortar, you'll also get free shipping and overnight shipping in California. The Shelter in Place music was composed by Chase Horseman at Reactor Productions, and the Shelter in Place artwork was created by Sarah Edgel. As always, you can find links to the things I mentioned in each episode in my show notes at laurajoycedavis.com. Until tomorrow, this is Shelter in Place. I'm Laura Joyce Davis.